In this episode, I'm joined by a local author who's going to tell some stories from her new book about Washington, D.C. that you may have never heard before. I think that the timing of this episode is perfect. Travelers are starting to come back to Washington, D.C., but 2021 is different than in the past. You need tickets and reservations to do a lot of activities, and I've heard that at least so far, tickets to the most popular sites have been quite challenging to get a hold of. But almost everything we discuss in this episode are things that you can check out while you're here, no ticket required. So if you're planning to visit this year, you can make notes of some of these ideas. Or if you're coming sometime beyond 2021 and are looking for more unique activities than the popular sites that everyone sees, I think this episode will give you some good inspiration. With that said, let's get started. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Tripax DC Tours. There's no better way to see the monuments and memorials than on a guided walking tour. The amount of hidden symbolism baked into these sites is absolutely incredible. And seeing them up close with a guide means that you can take in all the meaning behind our country's most hallowed sites. If you're interested, you can learn more over at triphexdc.com tours. Today, I am joined by Joanne Hill. Joanne is the author of the new book, Secret Washington, D.C., A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. She is an avid traveler and foodie who writes about her global travel adventures on the blog dcglobejotters.org. She is also an educator, former D.C. public school teacher, and founder of the tutoring company Capital Teachers. So, Joanne, welcome to Trip Hacks DC. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for having me on today. I'm happy that you're here. When you first told me that you had a book coming out about, quote-unquote, secret Washington, D.C. sites, I felt excited to check it out, but I have to admit, as a tour guide, I also figured I probably knew most of the stories. So when I sat down and started reading, I actually learned quite a bit, and I just want to start by saying thank you for bringing these stories to my attention. My pleasure, and thanks for saying that. I um. I, I learned some of these stories from tour guides, of course, and of course, extensive research, but then I found other uh, stories that were not from typical tours. And so I tried to have as much of a variety in my book that I knew, like some places and stories people mo- might you know be aware of, whereas some were a little bit off the beaten path, a little bit lesser known. And so that was my goal. So that makes me very happy to hear. <laughs> there are dozens and dozens of stories in the book. Folks who are visiting D.C. can pick up a copy before their trip and give it a read. In this episode, I thought we could go through some of the stories that I found fascinating or that I thought listeners of the podcast would find interesting. Sounds great. Let's start with one of my personal favorite stories from your book. And this story takes place at a very well-known site, the Lincoln Memorial. And you have given it the chapter, Oops, We Didn't Mean to Shoot Mr. President. Yeah. So, and this is actually the last entry of the book. I think it's like the big grand finale. Um, This was a fun story that I've stumbled upon. Obviously, many of us, whether you're a visitor or a local, um, have been to the Lincoln Memorial. It's the iconic statue, iconic memorial. Um, But the fun story is about during World War II in 1942, the U.S. Army basically started installing some aircraft and they placed an aircraft gun on top of the Department of Interior. And basically, it was, of course, to um, reduce the risk of, to fight the risk of an enemy attack on the city. And so this was installed, and it was near a bridge. 
And on one morning at about 10 a.m. or so, a U.S. Uh, soldier, he accidentally shot this aircraft, but shot it at the Lincoln Memorial, right? And so it was shot on the east side of the memorial. I mean, it actually damaged, you know, if you look at the freezes, there are different states. Uh, it damaged the states of Connecticut, Texas, and Maryland. And of course, this was so, and still to this day, I mean, how many of our memorials or monuments are, are hit? by our own <laughs> our own military friendly fire right it was a complete accident nothing was ever intentional but you know so that left almost like a baseball size indentation on the east side of the lincoln they did try to repair it but the patchwork has come out of it so um and there isn't at least not that i know of any talk or any plans to actually repair that patchwork so if you really look carefully at you know you can see it uh, but it's just who would have known right attacked by its own its own military. I'm sure that most people don't know. I say that partially because I don't have great vision, so I have a hard time seeing it. But in all my years of giving tours, no one has actually asked me about it. We'll see if that changes now that your book is out. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. One of the next stops on my tour after we leave the Lincoln Memorial is the World War II Memorial. And the spot we're about to talk about, some people call it graffiti. Some people call it the equivalent of a modern internet meme, and some listeners might already know exactly what we're about to talk about. So can you explain what we are referencing? <laughs> yeah. So if you go to the World War II Memorial and you look behind the Pennsylvania pillar, you really have to purposely look for it. It's not noticeable. It's very good chance that you're not going to see it. But if you go behind the Pennsylvania um, pillar, there is this graffiti, and some people even call it artwork. I wouldn't go that far. It's definitely graffiti. But it is this picture of the, or the sketch of this bald-headed man who has this very long noise, nose, and it says, Kilroy was here. And so the story behind that is that during World War II, this image and message of Kilroy was here was found at different places around the world um, where battles are being fought. And the whole point of it was to let soldiers in combat know someone's here you're not alone. There's, you know, we're giving, it's, it's giving you a little bit of comfort to know that like, you're not by yourself during these frightening, horrible times and someone's here. And so it became kind of a phenomenon um, around the world. And so that's, that's the story behind it. But yeah, I love that it kind of made its way to the memorial and that it's a little hidden um, and not as much known to, you know, I didn't know about this until I researched it. So, and I've been to the memorial, you know, like many countless times. World War II history buffs almost certainly know about Kilroy and might even be able to tell you that Kilroy really confused the Germans, and Hitler actually thought that Kilroy was the name or a secret code name of a high-level Allied spy, when in reality it was just this symbol that the Allies used to let each other know that they'll be okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a feel-good story too, right? Like knowing that this, this artist was like, I want to give, you know, I want to let soldiers know that we support and comfort them and, and are with them. A little bit farther down the National Mall is a kid's carousel. I've walked past this carousel probably thousands of times over the years and just thought that it was a fun thing for families to stop and do if their kids get tired or get fatigued from going to the museums. Of course, it feels a little bit out of place because the National Mall is not an amusement park and this is literally an amusement park attraction. So how did this wind up over here and what's the deal with it? So the carousel, you're right, was not always here on the National Mall. It came from an amusement park in Gwyn Oak, which is outside of Baltimore. And it had been there for a while. And so on, in 1963, on the same day that Martin Luther King delivered his iconic speech, I Have a Dream, 
That was the same day that this amusement park went out, discontinued segregation. And so on that particular day was the first day that an African-American child and two white children rode on the carousel at the same time. So of course, you know, I mean, you can't think of a nicer story in terms of just timing and kind of, you know, exemplifying King's message of racial harmony and integration. Fast forward in the 80s, the carousel was acquired and was brought over to the National Mall, which of course is now where it is permanently. But when it was brought over, that story wasn't known. And it was eventually then purchased by two individuals, um, private private citizens. I also think that's interesting. Most people think that the mall or the National Park Service, the Smithsonian owns the carousel, and that's not the case. So these individuals later found out about the story. And obviously, what a great story. And now if you go behind the carousel, there is a very small plaque that kind of commemorates its history and just how it's kind, you know, it's tied into a little bit about the civil rights movement and so forth. But I just, I love that story. I also think how incredible, like where it's situated on the mall is not too far of where King delivered his speech. So, I mean, that's just the coincidence and just the have kind of all comes full circle. I think it's just a really nice, um, nice story for sure. In some ways you want to believe that everything happens on the national mall because it was done intentionally. But like you said, in this case, it's just an incredible coincidence. Yeah, and a really great coincidence, right? Also on the mall is a statue to a man who was not a former president or a civil rights leader. It's Albert Einstein. This is one that people do sometimes ask me about because they heard about it in passing and they're curious. So can you tell us why, among all the other monuments, we have this giant statue honoring Albert Einstein? Yeah, I, so I'm a former teacher. I taught uh, in DC public schools for 17 years. And this statue, when I would bring my kids on field trips, if we were in that vicinity, was a favorite because it's one of the few memorials and statues that actually encourages kids to kind of climb and clamber upon. So it's, you know, it's huge, right? It's, um, it's a bronze statue that's about uh, 12 feet tall, weighs about four tons. Um, but I like that it's, like you said, it's not a memorial who honors a president and so forth. It honors a physicist, right? A science who also isn't American born, right? Which I think also plays into just why it's pretty significant. I learned more about him. I mean, it's, it's the, the statue is pretty close to the uh, National Academy of Sciences. And he wasn't inducted into the Academy of Sciences as like a full member until the 40s after he became a, an American citizen, right? Um, but what's fun too is that, you know, there are a lot of legends, you know, if you sit on it and you rub his nose that, you know, his genius may just wear off on you, right? And then if you sit, um, kind of stand at the center of the statue, like stare directly at his face that you can, you can talk, you feel, you hear a distinct echo. So it's, it's just for me, it's a fun statue that kids love. It's also a really beautifully done statue, right? It's really aesthetically very nice and very appealing. The echo chamber is extremely cool. I attempted to capture that on video recently, but people said they couldn't hear anything. So I I guess that means you just have to make a trip to Washington, D.C. so you can experience it yourself. That's exactly right. Another popular site in D.C. is on Capitol Hill. It's on the east side of the Capitol, and it's the Supreme Court building. Now, the building opened in 1935, which means that the Supreme Court was not always here. And in fact, for the majority of our country's history, the Supreme Court didn't even have their own building at all. But that's not what this story is about. This is about an old prison that was on this spot within shouting distance of the Capitol building. <laughs> the fact that it was an old prison, right, I think is, is obviously very alluring. I found out about this story on a walking tour in D.C. 
Um, and so a lot of individuals were imprisoned at where is now stands the Supreme Court, um, especially like Confederate spies and generals and so forth. It was a boarding house, was converted to a prison and so forth. But I think what I found interesting, especially during this time, is that um, a lot of the spies imprisoned were female, right? A decent amount. And so there are two particular spies that I uh, address in the book. Um, of course, there are probably more. But the, the one of the spies, her name was Rose O'Neill. She was a spy, but she was also a socialite. She was very well known. She was considered to be very attractive. She was very beguiling. She was able to get a lot of information for just her like charming, beguiling ways. She was imprisoned with her daughter in uh, at the jail, and they were imprisoned for about five months or so. But she was regarded as a, an integral spy in the Confederate. She was later assigned by Jefferson Davis to, when she was released from jail, to go on these international international missions and lead those missions. So she, I find, is just a fascinating woman. And then another spy who was prisoned there, her name is Belle Boyd. She was also a Confederate spy, of course. And her story is funny because she would actually trade and like get intel through her prison window like she would get messages that were kind of thrown into her window and then she would sew messages into you know a a ball basically inside a ball and then like kind of like throw them back out of the window and that was how she was able to kind of have contact with the outside world um like this like rubber ball and so i just can like can you just like picture this like whole exchange back and forth of course now it's a prestigious building of you know the highest court in the land and so forth but it wasn't always It's hard to imagine because when you come to D.C. now, you can walk down First Street and you have the Capitol Dome on one side and the Library of Congress and Supreme Court on the other side. So it's just hard to imagine that at one time you might walk down this exact same street and people might have considered it a bit of a, I don't know, dangerous neighborhood because of the prison that was right there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, it's, it's crazy just how things have evolved and have changed so much over time. Speaking of the 1800s and how things have changed, when people think of the National Mall now, they probably think of museums and monuments. But in the 1800s, this part of the city was not a bunch of museums. In fact, a lot of people probably would have considered this a rough part of town. And there's a story in your book that I think really puts this into perspective. Can you explain what I'm talking about? Yeah, so this is another one of my favorites, and I find to be also a favorite of many individuals who have read my book or have learned or heard about my book. So the Museum of the American Indian, which I think aesthetically is the most beautiful museum on the mall. And I would say now the uh, Museum of African American History is also aesthetically gorgeous. But, you know, the American Indian is just architecturally, it's quite a wonder, right? But prior to it being the Museum of American Indian, it was a brothel. And not just was it a brothel, it was one of the most successful brothels in the entire city. And so there was, you talked about kind of this like dark path of that area, which of course is so different than today. That area, because there were a lot of people coming in for the war, soldiers and, and generals and so forth, it's a very different area. And it was a little, you know, a little seedy, a little bit of like a red light compact district. Um, and so there were a lot of brothels. There were actually about a hundred or so brothels around the city, but they were pretty compact. They were pretty contained and concentrated in one area. And the area that we know of today as Federal Triangle, that was called Hooker's Hooker's Division. And there were, you know, I mean, as men come in or traveling men, brothels became really, really popular. And so this particular brothel where the American Indian Museum was built was owned by a woman. Her name was Mary Ann Hall. And she was, like I said, 
probably the most successful, or at least one of the most prosperous and successful brothel owners in the city. She also was, you know, a socialite and she was held in high society and she was really regarded very highly, right? She was respected. And so it, she also was known to like very, take very good care of her women. So she provided them health care. Um, she made sure that they were protected because that also was her, her livelihood and so forth. But they were, they were known to be treated very well. And so years later, when, of course, the brothel was uh, taken down and destroyed and so forth, and they were excavating for the museum, they found a lot of artifacts, right, when they were excavating. And they found things like champagne bottles and corks and, like, porcelain uh, tableware and all of these things that led you to believe, like, they lived a very, very wealthy and nice life. Like, a lot of people in the area didn't particularly have access to champagne bottles and champagne things like that. So they, they did very well, more uh, better than your average neighbor, I would say. I think what's fascinating about this story is not just that there is a Smithsonian Museum here now, but that it's the museum that's actually the closest to the Capitol Dome. So if you think about it, you might wonder, how was this place ever operating there for all those years and the people in Congress and the city leaders, they just let it slide. But like we've said, the 1800s was a very different time. Very different time. Yeah, for sure. This next story also comes from the 1800s. Near the Capitol, there is a statue to former President James Garfield. And most people don't know much about Garfield. And they walk right past and don't even realize who this is. A big part of the reason is that Garfield wasn't president for very long. Can you talk a little bit about why and why his presidency was so short-lived? Yeah. And so I will admit that prior to writing this book, I wouldn't say I knew a lot about Garfield either. And really, and he was the 20th president. Um, and really because he was only president for about four months, right? So such a short amount of time. But the reason why is that he was shot and of course, eventually killed. He was shot by a lawyer, although lawyer is a very like loose interpretation, you know, if he actually was an attorney, uh, this man called Charles uh, J. Gateau. And so this individual, Mr. Gateau, was basically became obsessed with Garfield and kind of essentially stalked him. And so he did some campaigning for Garfield, which of course we think of campaigning, but in his mind, he thought that he was pretty much responsible for Garfield's election and winning the election for his presidency. And so because of that, he felt like he should be rewarded and that he should be able to find, like to be given um, a strong position. Like he wanted to have a post in Paris but he didn't even speak French. So like he was pretty delusional. And so of course, Garfield dismissed him. And of course, being dismissed made him very, very angry. And so what happens is that he goes to which now is the National Gallery of Art, that then was the Potomac, the Baltimore Potomac Railroad Station. That's where it stood. And so he went and he shot Garfield. Uh, but Gateau was found guilty. He was sentenced to execution. But the reason why the title of this chapter is finally on the mark is that he actually, his assassination, like there weren't actually markers or any kind of indication honoring this event. And so it wasn't until like somewhat recently that these two markers right outside the gallery of, Mar of art were actually placed. Like there were people who like historians and so forth that really had to kind of lobby and, and push this that it actually happened, right? So it finally happened, but it took a long time. It happened without a lot of fanfare. I remember when they placed it a few years ago. There were some park rangers and a photographer, and there was a story about it on the local public radio, but that was basically it. So for all those years, over 100 years, we had nothing in Washington, D.C. to remember what is an extremely significant event that happened right here on the National Mall, the assassination of a president. 
Right. Exactly. It's kind of, it's pretty sad, right? But it coincides with his short presidency as well. I mean, it's all just sad and bizarre and all of those things. Okay, so we've covered some sites on the National Mall. Folks from out of town will have the opportunity to stop and see all of these places. But for folks who want to expand their radius a little bit, I noted some of my favorite stories from elsewhere in D.C. This first one is a personal favorite of mine. I featured it in a couple of recent Trip Hacks D.C. videos. And this is also one that movie buffs will often seek out when they visit. (laughs) Backtrack, if you are a movie buff, and I know that I grew up in the 80s. I was born in the 70s, but I grew up in the 80s. And the movie The Exorcist, um, which came out like in the early to mid 70s, was, you know, the horror movie. Um, I remember, remember like having to go to my friend's house to watch it because my parents wouldn't let me watch it. And so The Exorcist was the scary movie. And the stairs um, that are featured towards like the end of the movie when it's like the, the exchange between the self-sacrificing priests and the demon who possesses the 12-year-old girl it's, it's filmed in Georgetown on these stairs that have become to known as the exorcist stairs, right? And so the stairs are pretty, um, they're pretty steep. They're about 97. They're a little shy of 100 stairs. Your joggers run them and people, of course, go because they were featured in this movie. If you go to them, and maybe you can, you can tell me if you think this as well, they're like a little creepy, right? Like they're kind of like narrow and there's like ivy draping walls that kind of add to the whole mystique of these stairs. I agree. The stairs are creepy. The other thing that makes these stairs appealing is that many movies are set in Washington, D.C., and many of those movies are about the president or politicians or spies or diplomats, and The Exorcist isn't about any of that stuff. It's about this girl who's possessed and this priest who's dealing with that, and it's not just set but also primarily filmed in Washington, D.C., so I give it bonus points for that. Yeah, me too. On the other side of town, there are some columns in the National Arboretum. The Arboretum has come up in a previous podcast episode as an off-the-beaten-path place to go, but I'm curious to hear about these columns that you wrote about in your book. Yeah, so um, I live pretty close to the Arboretum in Northeast, and um, so I I find myself going there a a decent amount. And they're my favorite place near Arboretum. They're these iconic 22 columns. They're Corinthian columns. They're stunning, and they're beautiful. But they weren't always at the National Arboretum. They actually came from the U.S. Capitol. Um, And it's interesting, too, a lot of the stories in my book have some kind of connection with the Capitol, right? The Capitol kind of is the beginning of a lot of things. So basically, these columns came from the Capitol because when the Capitol was, like, completed and the dome was completed in in the 1860s, um, the architects pretty much kind of made a mistake. And the, the dome was bigger than they initially had planned. And so the columns no longer were able to support the dome. And so these columns, these stunning columns actually went in storage, which if you think about that, and I mean, just how iconic and how beautiful they are, and the fact that they were collecting dust for a very, very, very long time. um, It wasn't until 1984, so what, over 100 years later, that between, you know, uh, raising money and there was a benefactress and so forth, the, the columns were taken out of storage and were actually transported to the Arboretum, where, of course, they stand today. Um, but to think that these columns almost didn't make it out of there and didn't, you know, end up going on this pristine, beautiful land of the Arboretum is, to me, fascinating. Because to me, the Arboretum is almost def- defined in some sense, right, by these iconic structures. If you go on Google Images and search for National Arboretum, you might think that all of the pictures would be of trees and plants and beautiful landscapes. 
but a lot of them are of the Capitol Columns, so it's become an iconic site in itself. Yep, absolutely. This next story is one that people who like beer will enjoy. It was 12 years ago that the first modern microbrewery in D.C. opened. It's called D.C. Brow, and it ended a very long drought where there was no commercial beer at all brewed in the District of Columbia. But this story from your book is about a former brewer in D.C. and his house. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There, the, the brewery scene is now, I think, pretty pretty prevalent and pretty, you know, hopping around D.C. The brewery scene can kind of thank um, a German beer maker. His name is Christian Herrick. And basically, he came over in the 1860s, and he learned how to uh, brew beer when he was a kid. So that was part of his childhood. So he comes over, and about the 1890s, he creates this huge structure that actually is where now, it's a brewery, and it's now where the Kennedy Center is. So this brewery ends up becoming a huge brewery, and produced almost over about a ha- over half a million barrels, barrels a year. He was actually the second biggest employer in D.C., only behind the U.S. government, which is pretty big, right? And so he, he grew um, an abundance, abundance of wealth and became very, very rich. And so the Brewmaster Castle, which is the actual place featured in my book, is now, it's in DuPont Circle. It's at 13th and New Hampshire Avenue. It's in a beautiful area. The neighborhood's gorgeous. And the castle's beautiful, right? It's palatial. It's very, it stands out. I mean, it, it doesn't, obviously, it's, you know, the one thing there that doesn't kind of fit into the other places. That ended up being his home. And so he lived there as this beautiful Victorian home. He actually lived till he was 102, which if you think about it, of course, even back then, that it's incredible now. And in back then, it's incredible too, right? And so his brewing company did eventually close then um, in the 1960s. But you can now visit his place. So the palace, of course, with COVID, you know, they, they've done, they do a lot of like, it's almost like a museum to him and you can go and take a tour and they give beer and so forth. The last I saw, those tours have not resumed, although things are changing so much in DC by the time, you know, this could end up being open. But there's a garden in the back that has been open. And actually during COVID, I've, I've gone there a few times. It's nice. It's very quaint. It's very charming. People go there sometimes to do work and so forth. They do do events. That you can like order beer for, you know, takeout and so forth. But when it is kind of in its full life, you know, they would do things like Oktoberfest and have other uh, special events there as well. It's called the Brewmaster's Castle. And a lot of people probably think it's where they brewed the beer because it's huge. But like you said, the former brewery is now gone and this was just the brewer's home. So I understand how that misunderstanding can happen. He did very well for himself, I will say. (laughs) This next story is a love story. I think this is one that many listeners may be familiar with because people do ask me about it semi-frequently. And if you take a tour of Georgetown, this story will almost certainly be told. But can you go ahead and explain what this story is and why it's become such an iconic part of Georgetown history? At Martin's Tavern, which is a a funny story, when I moved to D.C. about 19 years ago with my husband, um, we moved during a time I was a teacher, but it was like in the middle of the school year. And so anyway, I bartended at Martin's Tavern when we moved here for about five to six months. Um, And so of course, after I started my teaching career, I no longer worked there. But the fact that now I wrote about it, it's kind of full circle for me. Um, But Martin's Tavern is a historic tavern. It it has a lot of great history. It's a a great um, part of history in Georgetown. But one of its biggest claims to fame is it's where um, John F. Kennedy proposed to Jackie. And so there is this booth 
um, that I think is booth number three, I believe. There's like a little plaque there. And, um, and it's where he proposed to her. And there was a lot of speculation about that for a while. And people didn't really know, is it true? Is it just legend? And actually, um, an older individual who said, who was there actually years later had said, yep, it, it's a true story. And I was there. And so now because of this, it's known that they, uh, the staff keeps chilled bottles of champagne in stock. And so if couples are kind of looking to kind of follow in the steps of Kennedy and Jackie, they can. Um, and so, and like I said, the, the plaque and so forth commemorates boot num- booth number three, yep, where he popped the question and so forth. And what I think is fascinating is not just that a famous historic moment happened here, but that restaurants and bars honestly don't have an especially long life. So if you think back 20 years ago, most of the places we used to go to are long gone. Yet... Martin's Tavern has existed for all these decades, and I think that that speaks to how popular the spot really is. It, it opened in the 1930s, so it's, it's almost 100 years old, right? Maybe 90 or so at this point. But that, like you said, that's, that's incredible. It's not something that happens every day in the restaurant and bar industry, for sure. The next spot I'm going to ask you about is popular with airplane enthusiasts. It's also popular with photographers. It's popular with locals who want to take their kids out for a picnic. And it's located right next to Reagan National Airport. So Gravelly Point Park is in Virginia. So a lot of places you and I have talked about today are in D.C. And I would say that probably about 80% or so of the entries in my book are in the city. But there are a good amount of places that are also featured in northern Virginia, some in Maryland and so forth. And this is one of them. So Gravelly Point Park um, is right along the GW Parkway. And it's known mostly it's close proximity to Ronald Reagan National Airport. And it's considered one of the best places in the country to actually view planes coming in and taking off. And if you go to this park, it is incredible just how close you are. I mean, the planes almost feel like you could touch them. They're that kind of close to you. But it's also, like you said, a great place where families go and they, you know, people walk their dogs, people have a little cookouts, people like bring picnics, um, you know, it's, it's along Mount Vernon trails. I know my husband and I, we bike a lot. And so we'll bike through Mount Vernon trail and we'll kind of stop at Gravelly Point, watch the planes for a little bit and go on. But it's a great spot to go. It's very cool. And it's just a nice place for families and it's outside. So, you know, regardless of COVID or anything else, you can go, it's free. And it's just, you know, it's always lively. It's very nice. You're right. This is one of the only places in this episode that's in Virginia, but it's really close. If you're starting at the Jefferson Memorial, you could walk or bike over here, and it's not even that far. Yeah, it's, it's worth going to and just a nice way to spend it, some time outside. I am particularly fascinated with this next story because when you spend time in D.C., you come across these odd-looking metal things, mostly downtown, and eventually you discover they are old call boxes. So in the old days before the telephone, if you were in distress and you needed to call for help, you used these boxes. Now... The boxes have not been used in a long time, but the structures are still there, and many have been transformed into pretty cool art and history projects. Yeah, so in downtown, not too far, like in the the area around the White House, so basically um, between about like 13th and 15th, between G and L Northwest, are a number of call boxes. And like you said, there are a couple hundred call boxes throughout the city that are inoperable, right? They're no longer working. But a lot of these call boxes have been transformed into 
art installations, but also just like historical markers. And so the downtown DC business improvement district, right, the bid, they basically worked with DC Commission of Arts and Humanities, and they partnered with an artist, his name is Charles Bergen, to reimagine these call boxes and and transform them into kind of like memorials, but more like art installations and historical markers for women. So that alone, I think there are so few statues and memorials that honor women. These were specifically designed to honor women, and there were nine women um, decided upon. These call boxes, like I said, you could, I'm sure many people walk by them and don't even don't even notice them, but they're you really stop and look, they're pretty incredible. They're very beautiful. They are pieces of art. Some individuals are more well-known. So Catherine Graham, of course, the, the famous publicist and so forth from the Washington Post, she's one woman who is honored with this call box. And so her call box, for example, is like black and white on the base. And, you know, there's, um, they what they do is the call box is basically they, they give honor to like what this individual is famous for and their contribution to society. But then also along the sides of the callback, they do give you history so that you they let you know why this individual is famous. Um, and so there's, you know, Catherine Graham, there's Elizabeth Keckley. She was um, a seamstress who used her seamstress skills to buy herself out of fla- uh, slavery and became a confidant for Mary Todd Lincoln. Um, there were some activists. There was a, a Flora Moulton, who was a gospel street performer. So these women, a lot of these women are a little lesser known than maybe your typical woman um, in history. It's it's one of my favorites as well. And it's a very easy to do thing to do outside. Take your kids to learn a little bit of history and honor some pretty significant women throughout American history. You can look these all up and DIY your own callbacks tour, I suppose, if you want. But I know that some tour companies, not mine, do offer guided walks and they tell the stories of some of the women. So that could be a really cool thing to do. Okay, let's talk about some spy stories, because let's face it, people love a good spy story. The first one takes place at a bar, a bar that I have personally been to, although it's changed owners and names a few times, but it's still the same bricks and mortar. And at one time, there was a double agent who really liked it here, too. Going back to Georgetown, this place, so right now, it's now known as Mr. Smith's. It's a restaurant and bar. It's very popular. When this spy incident occurred, it was um, Chatter which was the name, the former name. At this particular institution, years ago in the 1980s, I think it was 1985, double checking my notes, but I think it was 1985, a CIA operative met with a Soviet um, spy. The CIA operative, his name was Aldrich Ames. And so they met at the bar, Chadwick's, which is now Mr. Smith. And Aldrich Ames was in, um, he, was, he, knew, he knew Russian. He was pretty obsessed with the Soviet Union. But he also had come across really hard financial times. And so because of all of those things, he disclosed and revealed the names of over 100 CIA agents, CIA agents who were working undercover in the Soviet Union. And he actually at this bar jotted these names down and the information on a notepad. That gave him a payout of $4.6 million from the Soviets. Well, when you come across that amount of wealth, it's very hard to kind of hide it, right? And so, and he wasn't that discreet in all of this wealth. So um, at the time, he was making $60,000 a year. But he bought a half a million dollar house in cash. He started driving a very expensive Jaguar. He started wearing very expensive tailored suits. You know, all of these things didn't kind of add up to the salary that he was making. And so, of course, he also worked with, you know, they started to investigate. 
and found that he was involved and was a traitor and, you know, revealed all of this and put all of these individuals at risk. And so he was sentenced to jail for life without patrol, without parole. His wife also was sentenced to jail for a little over five years for like her role in aiding and betting and so forth. Can you imagine like, you know, on a notepad, just jotting down names and disclosing all of this crazy information? When I first read about this story in your book, I wondered how you could not be more discreet with the money. But I suppose if you were going to betray your country, you're probably already pretty shameless. Yeah. The next spy story I want to talk about takes place at a hotel, one of my personal favorite hotels in D.C., not because I've stayed there, but because it's old and historic and beautiful, and it's kind of infamous for being a bit of a spy hub in the city. So the Mayflower, Mayflower Hotel is an iconic hotel. It's close to the White House. It's it's beautiful. But of course, because of its proximity to the White House, a lot of um, distinguished people have stayed there, right? So presidents, royalty, dignitaries, celebrities, and so forth. Um, but it's also a place where a lot of spy operations have happened, of course, because of its close, you know, its closeness to the White House and just its this stately, huge hotel. So we go back to World War II in 1942, and there was a German spy. His name was George John Dash, and he checked into room 351. And his hope was that he would meet with FBI director at the time, uh, at, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, to he wanted to divulge his spy mission, right, and tell them about this Nazi mission that was going to happen. But the FBI didn't believe him, and they thought it was a hoax. They thought it was a scam, and they kind of dismissed him. Um, Hoover ne- never actually ended up meeting with him, but another FBI agent did. And this gentleman led them to the individuals who are involved in this mission, right? And so he, of course, because he led them, he gave them information, he was pardoned. Um, but the other six of the um, six of the individuals were convicted and were actually executed. And this is a time where the electric chair was still a thing in D.C. And so they were actually executed by the electric chair. Um, so that's one of the big stories there. But there have been, you know, operations throughout the years. Um, even like more recently in 2009, there was a NASA scientist who went and was arrested at the Mayflower because he was trying to sell classified satellite information to he, these individuals who he thought were Israeli spies, they were agents and so forth. So it's, you know, has this kind of long history of espionage. It's also, you know, very famously known to be like where the infamous picture of where President Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky hug and they embrace. And that picture was, you know, broadcasted all over media and so forth. So that was also taken at the Mayflowers. The Mayflower has, it's a great place to go for drinks and so forth, but it has a lot of history behind it. I think with hundreds of hotel options in the D.C. area, people are always trying to figure out how to pick the one that they want to stay at. And I'll say, if you're a history buff and you're into these kinds of stories, pick the Mayflower because you're going to be immersed in that during your stay. 1,000%. You're also be very centrally located. It's a great location. The last story I want to ask about takes place at a restaurant or what's now a restaurant. And the reason why this one fascinates me is because if you visit today, you would never in a million years assume that such a dark moment in our history happened at this little spot. Yes. So now we go to Chinatown and there is a restaurant there called Walk and Roll. It's an Asian eatery. They have karaoke there. It's a fun, very like small, non you know, it's, it, it doesn't really look like much when you go by it. It's not too far from the Chinatown uh, Gallery Place Metro, but its claim to fame is that it was a former boarding house. And this woman, her husband died. 
And they, she ran it as a boarding house, was it the, the Mary Surratt house, basically. And um, it was at a time, though, she became involved with the plotting and the kidnapping and murder of President Lincoln. And so conspirators would come to this, this place and they would meet, and including John Wilkes Booth and so forth. And she was very active. She provided guns and field houses and so forth. And so her role was so involved that she actually was hung. And she was the first woman um, in American history to be executed by hanging. Outside of the restaurant, if you look, there is a little plaque that gives a little bit of history and says, you know, the Mary Surratt house or so forth. Um, but, you know, if you walked in now, you know, and you order some sushi and it's just, it's right. You would never know that. I mean, like the, the fact that this, this place, this restaurant has this history. It's, it's, it's incredible. You would probably never think it because it's a restaurant with a pun for a name, walk and roll, that has karaoke in the back. And yet this was the spot for something so dark and sinister. Okay, like I mentioned at the very beginning, I picked out the chapters of your book that I found the most interesting and that I thought that listeners of the podcast would find interesting. But these are only a fraction of the stories in the book. So now I want to know, Joanne, what your favorite story is that I haven't already asked you about. Okay, so that's a great question. I I will say many of the chapters you asked me about were a lot of my favorites. So I actually have, like, it's not that easy, but I'm going to choose one that is not scandalous or controversial, although I know that those the scandals are the fun thing to talk about, of course. But given COVID and that we were, we're all kind of now getting out more and more and more and exploring, when I wrote a lot of this book, it was during COVID where I was kind of limited in places I could go and research. This place gave me joy and happiness. So the Barbie Pond and Avenue Q is, again, I wouldn't say it's my favorite favorite, but it's one of my favorites. And I always leave with a smile on my face. So in Northwest, in like the Logan Circle, DuPont Circle area, it's on Q, uh, between 14th and 15th Streets. There is a house and the, the street itself is gorgeous, right? It's tree lined, it's very picturesque, a beautiful neighborhood. There is a house that in the front yard, this very small front yard, is this amazing art installation that is completely comprised of Barbie dolls. And it sounds very, you know, silly and frivolous. And, it, and there is some to that. But what it is, is this amazing art installation that it changes about every month or so. And they're always themed. So some are as uh, Pollyanna as, you know, St. Patrick's Day or Fourth of July they do great installations, you know, for Halloween and so forth. They get very creative. But it's also, they also do installations that are more politically charged, right? So down around the election, they had a lot of great themes with like cast the vote and, and rock the vote and those kind of things to kind of encourage people to vote. And then, of course, when Biden and Harris won, there were these big, you know, it was all dedicated to them. They also do um, installations that are meant for inclusion, right? So like around gay pride, um, pride month and so forth, they'll... They really honor that month. So it, it's, there's activism, there's inclusion, there's, it's, it's fun. They're, they do funny plays on um, pop culture and so forth. The other thing that's fascinating is that the individuals behind this are pretty anonymous. You know, I'm sure neighbors, some of the neighbors know who they are. I mean, they've lived there for years. But even, you know, I, I contacted them a few times through Instagram Messenger. I, I don't know their names. And I always wonder, you know, when do they go out and change these installations? They're pretty involved pretty intricate installations and yet like 
Do they go out in the middle of the night? You know, are they going there kind of quietly, secretly changing these installations? It's a great place to explore outside. You can walk, you know, it's become kind of famous now. It's on TripAdvisor. They have a whole Instagram following and so forth. But that's a good spot to go. I think it's kind of cool to take kids to, you know, it's just, it's a cool, it's cool and it's different and it's, it's fun. I think this spot is a long time locals favorite, but I don't think I have ever had someone on one of my tours ask me about it. So it's still a pretty well-kept secret. We'll see if that changes after people pick up your book and read it. Well, Joanne, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come and tell these stories on the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Like I mentioned earlier, these are all in your book, Secret Washington, D.C., and they're just a fraction of the stories that are in there. So if folks enjoyed the episode, they can buy a copy of your book and read about the rest. So can you please let everyone know where they can find the book, where they can get a copy, and if they want to follow you, where they can keep up with you? If you want to shop locally, if you're in D.C., politics and pros, E-City Bookshop, um, Solid State, you know, Kramer's, you know, many of the bookstores around the city carry my book. I've done some events with them. Amazon sometimes is the convenient choice. So I understand that. And so, of course, it's on Amazon. Um, I also, so I have a website called secretdcbook.com. And so that website, of course, you can check out my book, you can purchase it. But it also, I have some stories on that website that didn't make it into the book just because of it, they couldn't fit. You know, I had to limit it to 84 entries. Um, and so they're fun. I also have book events there. I have a little bit more information. So that's another place that you can find the book. So it's pretty readily available. Um, I'm on Instagram. It's Joanne underscore Hill underscore DC because Joanne Hill is a pretty common name. I had to get a little creative. Um, but all of those places you can find me and find book, find the book and so forth. And I will put links to all of those resources in the show notes, and hopefully people can buy direct. But I do agree with the point you made. If you're traveling to Washington, D.C. and want to buy it while you're here as a souvenir, go to one of the local shops, East City, Solid State, Kramer's, or any of the other local bookstores and pick up your copy there. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful, and it was really fun. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.